This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we tap into the wisdom of 88-year-old Putney, Vermont resident John Caldwell. From wool knickers to high floros, this Caldwell has seen it all. U.S. Olympian, U.S. ski team coach, advice guru, sauna aficionado, parent husband, and grandparent. John Caldwell stays current with the sport as he's got two grandkids on the U.S. ski team and he keeps a keen eye on technique advancements. Okay, here he is. So can I get you to introduce yourself and how old you are and where you live? (laughs) Sure. I'm John Caldwell and I'm 88 years old and I live in Putney, Vermont. And have you lived in Putney for most of those 88 years? No, I didn't move here until... 1941. I've lived here since 1941. This is a big, wide-open question, but for people who don't know, um, what is your relationship with cross-country skiing? Well, I started cross-country skiing when I was in high school, skied in college, and I went to the Olympics in 52 as a Nordic combined skier, but I think uh, what has put me most into other people's eyes as uh, being the author of the cross-country ski book. And it sold through seven editions, something like 500,000 copies. So my uh, editor said, hey, John, that's that's a bestseller. That's a big deal. And so a lot of people, I think, have read the book. And I've coached extensively on the uh, on the circuit as the uh, Olympic coach or FIS coach or junior world coach. I've been to Europe and uh, Japan and Australia in a coaching capacity several times. Uh, When was the uh, book first written or first released? It came out in 1964. You know, again, feel free to bring the conversation wherever you want. You know, what are your thoughts specifically on the U.S. ski team men's team and the up-and-coming men and how that relates a bit to athlete development? You know, these are all good questions. I, I, there are a bunch of guys out there, five, six, seven, eight guys who show promise. And I don't want to mention names because I'll forget somebody, but it's, I think what the U.S. ski team can best do is uh, be patient and, uh, somehow find support for them or arrange support for them or encourage support for them because uh, the team clearly doesn't have the budget to, uh, you know, bring all those guys together. But if, if those guys could get together more often and train with each other and hammer each other a little bit, I think they would all move ahead faster. I've, I've, uh, I think we've talked about the World Cup points and the fact that two-thirds of the guys who get points in the World Cup races are between the ages of 25 and 30. And uh, one-sixth of the guys who get points are under 25, and the other one-sixth of the guys who get points are over 30. So... A lot of patience is necessary, and a lot of long-term training is necessary. And uh, the U.S., I mean, it's the U.S. ski team, and they should be leading the charge to uh, promote these guys or get them into situations so they're comfortable and they can find support and they can keep training until they're 26, 27, 28 years old. And from your perspective, and I know things have gone back and forth over time about U.S. ski team recommending people to not do the four-year college route, then it's okay to do the four-year college route and how that plays out. But how do you think, you know, a skier that is shows quite a bit of promise, what would be your advice to them in terms of whether or not they jump into, you know, a full-fledged NCAA program for four years. I think it's very important that uh, 
skiers who get a chance to go to college and get support from the ski team, that's, that's great because it gives them four more years to develop and maybe they come out when they're 22 or 23 years old. And that, that's terrific. The guys who don't go to college are kind of on their own. And uh, the question is, how do they get support? You know, who, who's going to support them? So college, I think, is, the, is a great avenue for, for developing skiers. I remember several years ago, the U.S. ski team told the kids, don't go to college, train with us. Well, that just doesn't work. You know, this fellow German, George Zipfel, he used to race against my son, Tim. Zipfel pushed through the FIS this U23 idea. So they have the U23 championships, and that's for a good reason. <laughs> the reason is, let's have a championship for these guys because they're, they're really not going to be ready for the big time until they're over 23. So, so that's an effort to keep, keep skiers in the ball game. And uh, people should know about that and recognize that over here. From your experience back when you were heavily involved with developing athletes for the U.S. ski team and with the U.S. ski team, you know, how did you go about doing that and finding those athletes that maybe showed a bit of promise and, and giving them the proper structure to, to grow? <laughs> well, you know, when I was coaching, we, <laughs> there wasn't much of a system. We, uh, I got to be a head coach in 1966 at the Oslo World Championships, and it was Probably because of my record with, uh, you know, developing skiers at the Putney School. And there wasn't much of a system then. We'd have some tryouts before the uh, big event like the Olympics or the FIS. And we'd have the tryouts, we'd name the team, then we'd take the team. And that was about all there was to it. And then we'd come home, the guys would go their separate ways. And it was really no program, no, no, no long-range pro program. The guys were on their own. That's changing now, thank goodness, and more skiers are more serious about year-round training, and more of them are getting together in small groups, and there are small, they're, they're all these racing academies, which are really great, and, and are helping train the, train the skiers. So, so all that's changed, but it's, that's all happened since, since I retired. You know, what are your thoughts on whether or not our skiers do or don't need more exposure to European racing? <laughs> and if so, you know, how do we provide that kind of exposure to, to yeah. lots of athletes? Yeah, that, that's good. Ab listen, <laughs> absolutely. Our skiers need a lot more exposure to European skiing. This is where I find fault with the U.S. ski team. I think they have to lead the way here and collaborate with the regions and encourage the regions to uh, send more athletes abroad. The, the, the U.S. ski team seems 98% bent on just servicing the FIS team or the Olympic team, but, uh, and, and they've been, <laughs> the, the ski team hasn't been doing the job in development. They are the ski team, and any development is going to uh, help them in the long run. Oh, there's an interesting story. When Marolt was in there running the ski team, I wrote those guys 10 consecutive years every spring. And I said, hey, guys, you've got to start a development program. Get with it. And I'd go into details. Of course, I never got an answer, never got, you know, the, the courtesy of an answer. And so I gave up. And the year I gave up, they gave me a big award, probably for shutting up. I don't know. It was funny. It was funny as the devil. But the, the ski team has to, and here, here I think is the most important thing I can say, the ski team has to reach out and help. There are a lot of coaches and athletes and parents and fundraisers and people interested in cross-country the, the ski team has to reach out and make these people feel 
they have some ownership in the future of the sport and the future of the U.S. skate team. The skate team is not doing that now as far as I can see. And the National Nordic Foundation, they're doing a fantastic job raising money. But the money is sort of a, after the fact. They get the money and they say, then the team is selected by the U.S. ski team, uh, Junior Worlds or some team, and, and they say, okay, now we can help you guys. Well, that's terrific, but it's got to start earlier. And, and the ski team has to realize that. And I think they, I think they should break the country. This is a huge country. It's part of our problem. Uh, they've got to break the country into regions. And, well, there's, there's already a little friendly competition between the regions, that's for sure. But the ski team has to break the country into regions, recognize the regions, and encourage the regions to, to uh, develop their own programs. But the ski team can help with connections and with, uh, you know, connections in Europe, with connections to donors, with connections to sponsors, and all that sort of thing. When we started NENSA here in New England, I kept telling the board of directors and people that were really interested in getting this thing going, I kept telling them, look, pretend New England is a country. And now behave as you would if you were in a country. How are you going to set things up? Let's, let's get a development program. Let's get trips to Europe. Let's name a team. Let's get training camps, et cetera, et cetera. And I think... I really think the U.S. ski team should do that and encourage that for every region. We need help in New England, for sure. You know, our budget is, is in jeopardy, I think. And, uh, but uh, the U.S. ski team should take the lead here. I, I especially think it's important because I, I just have a hunch that after the next Olympics, there's going to be a, a big turnover, I think, not only in, in athletes, but in coaches. And, gee, now is the time to, to really get a more effective development program, or else in 2019 we're going to be, you know, up the creek without a paddle. So currently, U.S. Ski and Snowboard, or USSA, what they formerly were called, they do send athletes to Europe or help organize some trips, a Scando trip or OPA Cup and obviously World Juniors. Are you suggesting something that might be more long-term, sending younger athletes to Europe maybe for two months? Well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm suggesting more of the same. I mean, the U.S. ski team kind of gets credit for like sending teams to the World Juniors or the U23s or the Scandinavian Cup and stuff like that. And, and they, they do help organize these trips, but the athletes pay for it, see? And so the athletes scratching around back home or trying to get money or trying to find support, uh, I think it would be better if the ski team gave sanction to the various regions and, and let the regions try to raise money and let the regions form a team and let the regions, uh, uh, you see, that way we're going to, the, the people in the regions are going to feel more ownership. Now the ski, uh, the ski team, they sort of, well, they take the cream of the crop, they cherry pick, they take the people off, they name them. Here's the, here are the guys that go into the U23s. Okay, you guys, raise money and, and we'll send you along, we'll send a coach with you. Well, that's that's okay, that's an effort, but I think it can be done much better and give the regions more responsibility, give them more opportunities to send trips on their own, make them, make them behave like a small country. Okay. So it would look something like NENSA organizing its own trip and it's under the umbrella of NENSA sending kids to, you know, Europe for a month or two. Yeah, sure. And... You know, do you think it would be a stretch for if we had a regional outlook for sending, you know, region, regional teams over to Europe? Do you think that's something that the community could support financially from your experience? Well, I, <laughs> I think it's the only way it's going to happen. The, the U.S. ski team can't fund it. I, I appreciate that. You know, the U.S. ski team is governed largely by Alpine 
interest. We call them the, the gravity people. And uh, the, the cross country is always going to come up on the short end of the budget. So the only way that it's going to happen is if the regionals are, again, given the responsibility and the feeling of ownership. And then people can, can you know, it's different giving 200 bucks to a regional team uh, than giving 200 bucks to the U23 team. See, who, you know, you may have nobody on the U23 team from your from your uh, region. So it's local local support is so important. Um, I know that you in the past have mentioned uh, the the 82 U.S. ski team and its success. And I'm, you know, from your experience or your perspective. You know, can you describe that team and what they made them unique and successful? Yeah, well, it was, uh, I tell you, Dan Simino was on that 82 team, and he, more power to him. He was over there in Maine training on his own, and he, he had a tremendously successful year with that team. The other guys, Stan Dunkley was one of them. He lives in Brattleboro right down the road here. And he didn't make the team, but he, he was part of the group, along with Jim Galanis and Tim Caldwell and Bill Coke. And these guys, these four guys, Dunkley, Galanis, Caldwell, and Coke, trained together all the time. You know, and they, they didn't have a coach. I might have been, you know, I might have been around to drive them to a workout or something, but I wasn't prescribing anything. These guys did the work themselves. And uh, that year, they, I think they ranked, I forget where the men ranked, second or third in the world. All four of those guys were in the red group. And, and you know, they, they, they got there by dint of very, very hard training and good training. And, and that's the sort of thing I see the possibility for now. Some, you know... You know, well, APU, Stratton Mountain, maybe Central, CXC, Sun Valley. I'm going to forget some places. You know, Crassberry. They they have groups training, and uh, it's starting to come together. I'm 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 optimistic about that. And when you say, you know, maybe it's self-explanatory, like hard training people may have a very good understanding of what that might mean, but, but good training, what does that mean in your, in your eyes? Well, a lot of hours and a lot of recovery and hard sessions and a few easy sessions. Some of the guys, I know Tim told me that during the summers and early falls, they were, they were training a hundred hours a month. Now, I don't know how many guys, these days train a hundred hours a month, but these guys that build into it, you see, they, <laughs> what happened really was Koki won his medal in 76. And then they came to 1980 in the Olympics and the team was a total bust and they got harassed a lot, especially Galanis and Tim and Koki. As a matter of fact, this is a, an aside, the, relay team at Lake Placid, the four members of the relay team all belonged to the Putney Ski Club, a club of about 35 members. That was Dunkley in there, I guess. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the guys crashed in 1980. Well, they got so much grief about it. They got really mad. And, and that's, that's all they needed for the next two years. And they were determined to... Uh, make up for 1980. And they did. They did. It's, it's a motivation comes in all sorts of forms, you know, and you can, it's, it's hard to predict sometime, but, uh, this, this made it for them. I, <laughs> I, oh yeah. I remember we were having a party here once at the house, the Putney ski club and, and, you know, a lot of guys were on the team and, they got a call from, I won't mention his name, but a reporter. Well, out in your area. Yeah, sure. It was, you know, Bob, you know, what's his name there? The mayor. <laughs> Woodward. Yeah. Yeah, Woody. They got a call from him. And God, were they mad. And they, they practically hung up on him. He, he was chewing them out after, after Lake Placid. And uh, they, they, 
they didn't even want to talk to him because they were they were disgusted with themselves and and they knew they could do better and uh yeah woody that was a woody helped you know that was a what I call motivation, and it comes in strange forms. I think Woody would try and, I don't know if he was trying to help. He was trying to find out what went wrong, get a scoop or something. Woody's a good friend, by the way. So <laughs> He lives right down the street. So you mentioned that back in 80, the men's team crashed, and I'm assuming you mean that more figuratively, like they just didn't perform to their probably to their standard or expectation. Why do you think that was? Well, I think in 1980, see, Hokie came through in 76, and the, the relay team did pretty well in 76, fifth or sixth, I think. And they had some decent results. And so they were building up until 1980, and up to 1980, and there was a lot of pressure, a lot of journalistic pressure, uh, uh, you know, that... That good alpine skier, Bodie Miller, God, they had him go into the Olympics for the FIS once. He's going to win five medals. You know, every race is going to win. And the, the media can do this and put pressure on, on guys. And I think it was a combination of pressure on these guys, home field advantage, therefore more pressure from all the fans, and probably not very good preparation. I'm assuming you, you, you do not formally coach anymore. Yeah, that's true. What do people like, you know, Zach Caldwell, who I think is your nephew, lots of Caldwells out in that part of the world, or, you know, uh, Tad, I believe, is, you know, either training in Putney or living with Zach in training. I know Chris Freeman's yep. around a lot. Noah is on yep. the East Coast. What types of questions might they ask you, someone who's probably seen it all? They don't ask me questions. I, I know all those guys. I like them. I go down and see them, and I go with Zach on some of the workouts. And then <laughs> if I have any comments, I try to make it through Zach or the coaches, you know, and, and uh, then Zach can use it or not. I, I usually have uh, comments on technique because I – I think I know a lot about technique, and uh, so I, I watched the guys, and uh, I remember recommending to Chris Freeman that he take up ballet or dance or something. Maybe it was on, I did that on, I don't know, Twitter or email or something, or his blog, I don't know, and uh, he remembered that. <laughs> a year or two later, he saw me, you still think I should take up dance? I, yeah, yeah, I said. And I had a recommendation for Noah and Tad, and I just passed them on through, through Zach. And Zach and I talk about it quite a bit. But that's, that's the closest I come to any coaching. You know, I, sometimes I talk about the, the guys, uh, not their training, but their social life and what else they're interested in. And I have, I have comments on that sometimes, but I pass them on to Zach. I, I think that's, the proper way to do it. I, <laughs> I passed on a couple comments to the U.S. ski team coaches on some of their best skiers. And, of course, it, that, those, those guys, it's, it's like they're working on a CIA secret project. You know, I, I never get an answer, never get any recognition. And I don't even know if they pay any attention to my recommendations, but I... I I, I do know, as I said, I do know something about technique, and I've, I've sent ahead some recommendations on technique for some of their best skiers and, of course, get no response, you know. And that's, again, that, that relates back to the problem of the U.S. ski team not encouraging any part of the team or any ownership of the team or anything like that. And I think that's a... That's a very serious mistake. They're, 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 I know a lot of coaches around here who've, who've been to clinics and listened to the ski team coaches and, and offered, offered, well, offered good information only to be ignored. And so it turns off the coaches, you know, and it's too bad. You know, you've seen numerous generations of skiers move through 
like the international or the highest levels of the sport. And you've seen that probably, you know, from when there was no, well, for certain, when there was no skate skiing to obviously, you know, a a sport where both, you know, classic and skate presumably share equal footing. I'm sure some people would say that classic skiing deserves to be put to bed. But that said, who are the most beautiful skiers that you've seen back maybe in the 80s? And then both men and women, who are the best or the most beautiful skiers technique-wise that you've seen, you know, in the current World Cup? Oh, boy. I don't know. That That's hard. I Like if you were, you were asked to head over to Stratton Mountain School for an evening and show a video of a current world cup skier and say, Hey, look, look how this is done. Who might you pick? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass my grandkids that Patty is a damn good skater. And, and Sophie, I think is, uh, arguably the best all around technician on the women's team. She's lacking, you know, uh, she's lacking a motor and, uh, but, uh, they're they're pretty good examples uh, right now. I think uh, I'm trying to think of some of the men. No, no, I'm not. I'm fussy. I'm not. I don't have a good impression of really good technique uh, on the American team. But I have to apologize and say I haven't seen them ski that much. But they. My feeling is that everybody on the team could use some technique brush-up. And I know the team sometimes emphasizes technique. That's good. And I think maybe this is one of the purposes of the trip to New Zealand. That's good. Uh, I think generally this country is weak on demonstrating and promoting good technique. Now, if you want good technique, you know, I'd go to the Norwegian team. And in and, and classic, I could pick almost any Norwegian. They ski pretty damn well. And the skating would, it would take me a little more, a little more time to uh, name some. And they're good, you know, there's good European skiers. But I don't see them so often. I, you know, I, I, I watch the U.S. team a little more on, on video and I don't see them live too much. I went up to Quebec for the uh, World Cup. That was fun. And it's good to see them firsthand. But uh, I, don't, I really don't see them often now. Do you watch the races online at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I get on, you know, Cross Country US or whatever it is. I watch the World Cups. Those are good. A little bit of a non sequitur here. Uh, obviously snow levels are not what they used to be even in say a 50 year span places like the east coast um in fact everywhere everywhere they've had kind of sporadic winters here and there where it's not uncommon to maybe just have you know a month of really solid skiing and the rest of it is kind of slim pickings you know what do you think about the future of nordic sport with so many recent low snow winters yeah. <laughs> well, that's tough. I can tell you, uh, Gary Larson from Central is a, is a good friend. He was back here a few months ago. We have sauna together and we we're talking a lot. He goes around and lays out cross country, you know, venues and stuff. And he said, he said, you know, I never, before I get started on this, I, I he says, you've got to have snowmaking. That's all there is to it. You've got to have snowmaking. And, uh, otherwise, <laughs> you're wasting my time uh, in effect and i think that's that's the future i can tell you uh Crassberry common up here in northern vermont has saved our new england ski season at least two or three times in, in the late winter because they make piles of snow up there you know the four feet of snow on the trails and that doesn't melt that fast in in march and even into april and they've saved our season uh but snowmaking is a must. And then I suppose the next thing we'll do is uh, move to altitude. But uh, you can't do that much in New England. 
what are your thoughts about U.S. Ski and Snowboard, or formerly USSA, and its role in promoting and developing the sport? And if you feel like we've covered that, we can skip it. Well, yeah, I, I've been over some of it. I think they have to take a more active role. And they have to, they have to imagine what the team and the coaching staff's going to be like after the Korean Olympics. I think they they seem reluctant to, uh, you know, in, in Russia. I used to talk with those coaches a lot. And if you had some guy who made the team from out in the boondocks and he made the Olympic team, the Russian Ski Federation would not only invite that guy, but he would bring his coach along because the coach knew him. And, and the, the, you know, most of the Russian skiers had their coaches. Now, over here, it's not that way. Here, here we have some guys. I don't know how many Alaskan coaches go over, but... You know, those guys are doing a hell of a good job out there. Stratton Mountain's good, doing a good job. But, you know, Patrick O'Brien is the coach over there. He's coaching a large part of the U.S. ski team. And, and they seem reluctant to even give him a trip to the World Cup or anything. And I, I don't get it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's strange thinking. And they pull guys out, you know, nice guys and probably constant coaches, but guys who maybe haven't coached anybody on the U23s or on the Olympic team or on the World Junior team, and they pull them out, and that's, this, this just doesn't work the same. You know, you, you, it's nice for an athlete to have his, his or her coach along on a, on a trip to Europe, and that, that makes a big difference. But they, I can't understand their thinking. And also, you know, for years, the men have been without a coach. You, you, you ask, well, how, how come the men are not doing well, well, or what, what's the problem here? Well, you know, the men haven't had a coach for a number of years. Just recently, they had one in name, but he never paid a whit of attention to them. And now I guess I think Grover was the named coach perhaps last year, but the you know, the men feel kind of uh, isolated. Some people tried to raise money to hire a men's coach. Can you imagine? Raise money, give it to the U.S. ski team. I think they did raise the money, but I'm not sure it went toward a coach. Uh, that's, that's ridiculous. That's insane. They've got to shape up here. You had a question about the men, you know, and the women have been very successful. And... Women are different from men. It's always <laughs> been my feeling that when I was abroad with both teams, they, uh, the women travel better. They get sick less often. They, they get along much better. The men snarl at each other and they get sick. And that's a special, that's a, that's a different situation with the men. And, and they really need a coach besides, you know, to, somebody to try to handle this, this difference. One thing I haven't mentioned is that the competition in men's World Cup races is much, much stiffer than in the ladies. You take a a guy who finishes 40th around 45th in the World Cup men's race and check his FIS points, and if he were in a similar ladies' race, those points would be good for... 20 places up the line, maybe 20th or 25th. You, it, all you got to do is compare the FIS points. And uh, the men's competition is seriously more, more, you know, tougher. It's just, so we should keep that in mind all the time. Most nations have either a much stronger women's or a much stronger men's team, with maybe Norway as the exception. And it's very difficult to sustain both a men's and women's team at the championship medal level. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Just how difficult it is to just maintain equity or performance equity on both the women's and the men's side? Well, yeah. Well, it's clearly difficult. But uh, another reason I didn't mention 
about the difference in men's results and women's results uh, in Europe, especially, is that a lot of those countries are still very chauvinistic. They don't pay a lot of attention to the women's teams. You know, I think the coaching is probably inferior to the men's coaching. The budget is probably smaller. You know, I've been to so many World Cup races, and the men race first, and then the women may race second. Well, after the men's race is over, the goddamn trail is flooded with coaches and timers and, and uh, uh, you know, feeders. They're all, they're all skiing back in. They're, they're, done, they're done for the day. Oh, yeah. Well, the women's race starts in 20 minutes, guys. Yeah, so long. I've, I've, I've seen, you know, I've seen what I came to see. And they don't pay much attention to the women. And so uh, the, the women are at a, except in Norway, of course, the women are at a disadvantage to uh, start with. Over here, it's a little different because our women are doing so well for reasons I think I've explained, you know. That, well, for instance, that other countries don't, don't push women's skiing so much, and, and so the competition is not as fierce as it is in the men's ranks. So I'm going to go, I don't know if you have the questions in front of you. Yeah. So I'm going to go to question 12 here. Oh, yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this so is good. Yeah. Now, here's what I want to say on. All right. Well, let me ask the question here so people can. All right. You go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, if you were in charge, how would you approach the awarding of World Cup starting spots to non-U.S. ski team skiers differently than the current U.S.S.A. or U.S. Ski and Snowboard system uh, allocates starts? Well, I'd change the whole system. I'd throw it out. And I believe in this bridges on the next question too. I believe in a maximum amount of coaches' discretion. And you see, now they, they have this super series and they, 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 uh, we get start rights for one guy and one girl, I guess, in every period of the World Cup and, and the winners. Well, I'm not sure it's the winners. I think we get to choose one, but the USSA chooses to take the winners of the Super Series at that point, and then they send them to Europe. Well, it hadn't worked out too well. Uh, I would leave it. I would leave it up to coaches' discretion. The coaches should know the results. They should be following them. It would be part of the development program. You follow your racers, see how they're doing. The coaches should know skiers who adjust culturally, who, who uh, don't get psyched out by different languages or different food, uh, who know how to peak at a given time. You see, peaking for the Super Series isn't the end all of, of skiing. I mean, that's the Super Series is, well, you know, it's just a little race. It's, it's nothing compared to a World Cup race. So I would, I would change that and just say, if, now see, we run into, I've got a story about this. We run into problems here with, uh, I don't know, Title 10 or selection systems and everything. And I think the USOC has generally said the selection systems have to be written out and they have to be spelled out and cleared everybody. I remember a hurdler named Harrison Dillard. I don't know if you know that name, way back. And he, he held the records in, you know, hurdles. And he'd, I don't know, he'd won 50 or 100 straight races. He came to the Olympic tryouts, and he tripped. Well, they didn't have, he didn't make it. He didn't make the Olympics because it said, we're going to take numbers one, two, and three in this race. And they didn't have any discretionary clause. That, that was plain, dumb thinking. Uh, Dillard, fortunately, was a good sprinter, so he said, Okay, I'll under 100 meter and I'll run that. And so he ran that and I think he got a gold medal in the 100. But it's the selection system was at fault. And I think, you know, you've got to put more on the coaches. Just, it's, a, it's an escape for the coaches just to have a point system. All they got to do is add a few numbers 
and uh, they choose their team. That's no good. You know, it, it, uh, the burden ought to be on the coaches, and they ought to be thinking about development, who they want and who they want to bring along and who they think is going to develop. And don't let, it can't let a point system determine that. I'm sure that, you know, there's RAG camps, there's a U16 national camp, and there's, you know, and having talked to coaches, like they, they are tuned into, you know, certain skiers throughout the country and how they're progressing through the ranks. But they're, my read on, you know, Faster Skier has published an article on the Olympic selection criteria. There was an article in, gosh, off the top of my head, either let's say January on the selection criteria for world championships. And this is just my hunch from the community of skiers, a lot of pushback when there's the perception that discretion has been used rather than a very sort of trans and, and transparent might be the br- wrong word, but like an obvious point system, if that's the case, to designate spots on either, say, the World Cup or on, you know, a championship team. Because I think you mentioned up top to that answer that you felt like more discretion should be used. Is that, I think that's what you said? Yeah, I would have each system designed with discretion, maybe up to a third or a half of the team. Now, you, you don't, most situations you don't need discretionary choices for the good guys the good people the good skiers the good gals they come out on top so you can use a point system there if you have discretionary choices then what you're doing let's say you're taking an eight-person team let's say four skiers are pretty obvious well then the next four that's usually a question and sometimes the eighth person on a points list beats the ninth person by the equivalent of a few seconds or something like that. Well, it's crazy. It's go back to Dillard. There's this hurdle racer. Okay. Bad things can happen. You trip on a hurdle. Okay. That's you're, you're done in skiing. Lots of bad things can happen. You, you can have bad wax, wrong skis, you can have an accident. You can have a freak fall. You can be skiing at altitude. You can have a cold. A lot of bad things can happen in a ski race to a skier. And, here, and, and so you might miss out on some points. Well, it's just crazy. The coaches should know, again, the coaches should know who the best skiers are. They know their records. They follow the skiers. And so if they have some discretionary choices, Maybe they can move up some people who don't have such high points. But, but, <laughs> this takes confidence in the selection system. The best selection system I ever heard was attributed to a European country. And let's say they, okay, we've got to select a team for the Olympics. We'll say eight men and eight women. Okay. They got some of the most knowledgeable coaches and administrators and followers of the sport and uh, all of whom were totally objective and they put them in a room and they locked the door (laughs) and they said you guys can come out when you have the teams named otherwise (laughs) don't bother us if you get hungry We'll pass through some bread and water through a panel on the wall. You stay there, work out the team, and then come out and announce it. Well, that's showing a lot of confidence in the selection system. There, there's no selection system in the world that I can't find fault with. I started working on this stuff back in the 50s, I think, with Larry Berman down around MIT, we, we, had, we started doing percentages, and then we got the idea of, of you know, putting in the strength of the field and all. Yeah, straight 
percentages, that's worthless, and, and on and on and on. And still, you know, I studied this, these systems, and there is no perfect system. And I feel sorry. I really do. I feel sorry for the team that has to use this system and, and name, name a team on points alone. It's, it's just no good. Why do you think, you know, maybe it's how we're all brought up in a political system where, you know, I guess, you know, democratic principles most often are applied or adhered to. Why do you think there seems to be some pushback whenever the word discretion comes up it, within the U.S. ski community? <laughs> we like maturity in, in, in our approach to cross country. That's, that's part of it. I mean, they, you know, people can find, I think a lot of this discretionary choices may have been made by people, by coaches who are pushing their athletes or something. See, that's no good. Uh, you, you've got to have faith in your committee, and, and the committee has to be objective. So I, I understand, yeah, they, they're, they're frightened to death of discretionary choices, but, you know, suppose, <laughs> I mean, I can think of all sorts of horrible examples. Suppose, suppose the U.S. ski team's coming to a race in a van, and, you know, it cracks up or they can't make the race, and then they have the race, and nobody on the U.S. ski team makes the U.S. ski team because everybody else, yeah, what do you do? No discretionary choices. Sorry, guys. You know, you guys didn't make the team. You didn't make the race. That, that's, that's, I mean, you've got to imagine all the horrible things that can happen to a racer, especially having a cold or missing the wax. It's hardly democratic when some racers show up and they have hotshot waxers and they have the best wax in the race. And, and they beat other guys who ski better and are in better shape, but they have crappy wax. You know, how democratic is that? You know, it's, it's, uh, there's so many things that can foul up a, a skier's race that uh, that's why I think you need some discretion and, and you need some objective people to look at the situation and, and make a decision. It's tough. It's it's probably a long time coming too, but that's all right. <laughs> it's an Olympic year. So the issues of rankings are, you know, they're obviously more prominent than normal. You've seen both points-based selection systems and a pure trial systems in your time. Um, and maybe you've addressed this, but any thoughts on which you believe works better? No, I don't follow this closely as I used to, but I, know that some skiers take points over from last year that comes into their points for this year well you know that's a year ago that's maybe that's no good maybe those points from last april at a race at altitude uh gets good points and it carries a skier through the selection system the next winter well that, that's that's questionable you know and then the uh, trials, trials just before the races, well, some guys know how to train, especially guys who've been around, guys and gals who've been around a long time, and uh, they know how to peak for the trials. So they peak for the trials, and they make the team. Good. And their, their season's done. They peaked for the most part. And see, so that, that's no good either. I think the team has... Uh, probably as good a system now as, as they can have. I think they t they'll take the team to Europe in early, <laughs> early the first World Cup period, and, and skiers who attain certain finishes at the World Cup level will be deemed to make the team automatically. And that leaves out, <laughs> unfortunately, it leaves out all the skiers over here in the United States. But uh, presumably... Those skiers on the World Cup circuit have proved themselves in past years, and if they still come in with good results from the World Cup, I mean, results good enough to make the team, and that's, you know, that's hard to argue with. That, that's good. But, oh, boy, it, it's, it's tough. I remember when I was coaching, we had an Olympics coming up. We had two guys in Europe. They were our best skiers, and they were over there racing. And I wanted them, I told the 
Nordic program director. I said, bring those guys home. I don't want to name them discretionarily because I want them home for purposes of development. At that time, development was high on my list anyway, and I wanted them, I wanted them to show our fastest skiers to the rest of the competition. You know, it would have been a hollow, hollow victory for the skiers who stayed here in the States to be named to the team if these other two guys were put on it discretionarily. And so for reasons of development, I, I got them back. Well, they were mad as hell, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's the way it goes. You know, coaches have to make those decisions now and then. It's tough. It's tough naming teams. And most of the trouble comes naming the last two guys on the team, last two gals or guys. And, you know, somebody can always find a race. Well, this skier beat so-and-so back in November. You know, why? You know, blah, 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 and on and on. It's very difficult. Anything that you, I didn't ask or anything you want to talk about? No, I think we've I think we've covered <laughs> we covered it pretty well. I don't. Good luck. Uh, good luck to you on editing. You you wanted me maybe. I said I wasn't wild about talking about the cross country ski book. I I'll say this. I've always tried to uh, write or coach in a way that uh, made uh, made the sport enjoyable or the athletes enjoyed. You know, like. When we took that uh, well-known hike of the long trail, 270 miles in nine days, 30 miles a day, that was a mammoth workout. The next year we did 800-mile bike trip in eight days. That was easy. But uh, and and I've always tried to get when I was coaching the men, get into the mountains and hike and run the trails, and all leading towards enjoyment of the sport and lifestyle because i think it's so important all these guys all these young skiers are eventually going to stop competing but you hope you uh, generate a feeling of, of uh, a good lifestyle and i think that's very important well yeah john thanks again for your time and i'm glad that we finally figured out a time to to chat really appreciate it okay thanks a lot bye bye Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation. 